Father, it is not with money that we buy our way into your favor. It is not with our good works that we are somehow saved. It is because of what you have done for us in the cross, what you have accomplished and completed on our behalf so that we are able to gather before your word and worship you, knowing that our God loves us and has called us for his purpose. And so we ask that you would bless our giving, not just of our money, but our time, our efforts, our talents, that others may know of this great love that is in Jesus Christ, that our families would be, would be changed, healed, and renewed. And the people of God said together, we're in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. Chapter 6, if you have your own Bibles, if you join me, I would appreciate it. We'll be reading from the NIV version, though uh, it may be a little different. There is still a great substance that is similar as these translations, whether it's ESV or NIV or the King James Version. All of them attempt to help us understand what it is that God is communicating. And of course, the only one who can help us truly understand God's Word is the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? And so I, I would be hoping that you, as we read God's word, would be asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to show you what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. And so this morning I'd like to read from the passage that is on chapter 6, starting with verse 60. And I ask you to hear now the word of God. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is, the, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus, John continues, had known from the beginning which one of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And when I, we, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This is the word of God. Would you pray for me and with me, would you? 
Father, as we study your word, we ask that you would search us and ask, answer the question that we all have, and that is, do I have an unbelieving heart? And where I have doubts, strengthen my faith. May your word abide in us, we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. I don't know about you, but one of the things that amazes me about the truth of the gospel is that the gospel is a message that is an offense. It's an offensive message. It offends people because it says you're not a good person. Now, none of you like hearing that because every one of us says, I'm a good person. <laughs> I haven't driven over the speed limit that much. I haven't gotten my angry at my neighbor so that I've shot them, though I've wanted to. I, I haven't screamed at my spouse and, and told them that they were going to hell yet. You see, the, the truth of the matter is that many times, and in our culture especially, we believe goodness is a matter of measuring ourselves against other people. We believe that goodness is a matter of us doing a comparison. And so in many Christian circles, we, we gauge our discipleship, our following of Jesus Christ by comparison. And some of us think we're better Christians than others. And other, others of us think we're worse Christians than others. But in that, in that scheme of comparison, what really happens is we use a worldly standard of discipleship to measure our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And you know what the truth is? That kind of comparison, that kind of spirituality of comparison really comes from a heart of unbelief, not, not a heart of faith, not a heart of belief. And so this morning, I want to show you very quickly as before we get into the Lord's Supper before we begin to come and appropriate the spirit of Christ and renew our hearts and our spirits before the Lord, that, that there may be some place that you are playing games with Jesus. You're, you're playing the outward game of looking like a Christian, but in your heart, there are still places where you are struggling with unbelief, or there's a potential where you might become someone who would betray him. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, yesterday we had a wedding in this place. Uh, Ryan and Emily got married. They were right up here, right up front. And, and I was explaining to those who came to the wedding and, and those who were gathered for the purpose of celebrating their union that what they were getting ready to do were to say vows before God that would unite them as one entity. Where before they came into the sanctuary, they were two people who were independently separated from one another. When they left the sanctuary, after giving vows to God and exchanging rings, they became united as one in a sense that they were united so they could never be dissolved. The, the pledge was, till death do us part. And one of the things that they, they heard in that whole service was that we're actually asking them and we're actually hoping to believe that they will be able to keep their vows and I reminded them they couldn't they couldn't keep their vows unless God helped them and so when you think of unbelief unbelief is that part of us that we think somehow because we are so spiritual 
or we are so good, or we are measuring ourselves against others in such a way that we truly believe that we have the power to live out what it means a life of following Jesus Christ. And you don't. You wake up every morning, and many of you have woken up with all kinds of temptations that you, have, that you are still having unresolved in your heart because you have continually gone through life believing you can overcome the sin of your heart by your good will. And you can't. And this is the whole purpose of chapter 6. If you go back last week and look at what John was teaching us. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You must come to me and feast on me. And I will give you life. I mean, it is, it is so blatantly obvious from chapter 6. That what Jesus was teaching was, you're not going to make it on your own. You're not going to go to church and find God without me. You're not going to draw closer to the one who created you and knows you unless you first begin to appropriate that closeness that he offers through the son, the one that he has sent into the world. And so in light of that, the, the gospel is offensive. It's offensive because it says we must first acknowledge where we cannot do things. We cannot be holy. We cannot be righteous. We cannot be good. Only God can do that through us. And so when you look at this passage and you begin to see what this, this, whole, this whole message is about is the first part that happens when Jesus teaches this and you go back to chapter 6 verse 25, his words become offensive to those people because they were really religious people. And he had a lot of disciples who were following him who had left their mother and father. And it, was, it wasn't just 12. It was a number. Some people who study the scriptures say it was many as 70 people who were following Jesus at this point. Can you imagine? 70 people who were following him. The 12 were like an inner circle. But as he was traveling around and teaching, there was a mass of people following him. And everywhere he went, they went. Whatever he told them to do, they did. Whatever he taught, they heard. And so as they were going through that, they come to this, this moment where Jesus begins to proclaim that I am the bread of life. He feeds the 5,000. He, he walks on the water so that they see him. Yet he is the Lord of creation. And you would think that they would immediately say, this guy is the one I need to follow. He is the one who has the answers to my life. But at the end of this chapter, we find some horrible news. That the words he's just taught us about him being the bread of life, the source of our righteousness, those very disciples are offended. I, I don't know if you've ever been offended. Have, have you ever been offended? I, I find people who are offensive very curious. Um, I find when I'm, when I'm talking with someone who's offended, they will easily tell me what they're offended by. And I'm using Logan because Logan's not offended me. I've probably offended him a number of times. But if, if, if Logan has offended me, I can tell you all the places where I'm offended by Logan. I can tell you how he did this and said that and, and how he didn't say this or didn't say that. And I could go through a list of places and I can ease any one of you. When I'm offended, I can easily just pour out my heart and tell you how offended I am, right? 
But if you said, well, have you talked to Logan about your offense? Well, no, I can't do that. Why can't you do that? Well, I, I don't want to do that. I might hurt his feelings. Do you hear what's happening? What truly is happening is a heart of unbelief expressing itself in that I want to be justified in what I think and what I believe concerning how I've been treated and I have no desire to resolve it. I just want people to take my side. So when a person is offended, they don't want to change. They want to have their way established and they want others to agree that they are right. That's a dangerous place. In fact, Jesus has taught other places in the New Testament that if you're offended by someone in the church, you are required to go to that person privately without announcing it to anyone else and say to your brother and sister, I'm offended. Here's something that hurt me. And the Bible says, get it straight with your brother, with your sister right then. It goes on to say, if your brother or sister won't listen to you, then go and grab a witness, someone else who's a Christian, and ask them to go back to that person with you. And if they still won't see the reasonableness of what has, has transpired, then go back and tell the elders. And if the elders going with you talk to this person to try to restore the relationship between the two of you, then if that person will not repent and restore their relationship with that person that's offended, then the elders are charged to inform the congregation that this person is not a part of our church. That's harsh, isn't it? This person is not a part. Why are they not a part of the church? Because they don't have a believing heart. They're not being transformed by the words of Christ. They are choosing unbelief over belief. You see, belief, according to chapter 6, is that we would not only believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but he is the very source of our living, and every word he's given we will live by. Remember, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You want to talk about being offensive? You know what Jesus said about your enemies? We should line them up and shoot spitballs at them. Right? Maybe we should wait till they get right in front of the car and run over them. Accidentally. No, he says we are to love and pray for them. Do you hear me? We're to love and pray for them. You say, Robert, that's crazy. Yeah, crazy like a fox. Why is it crazy like a fox? Because we know that God is the ultimate judge of every person. And I'm not. And so when you and I begin to look at this, I want to show you four things that happens uh, that created a problem in these people's lives as they heard Jesus' teaching. Four things that brought unbelief. The first is they were more interested in the superficial than the eternal. 
They were more interested in the superficial than the eternal. What do I mean by that? They were interested in satisfying themselves. Jesus said, you have sought me out, not because of the miracle and what the miracle pointed to, which is me. You have simply sought me out because I fed you. And I thought, yeah, that's probably true. Now, I, I don't know about you. I, I, don't, I don't like to go through a meal without bread. I think bread is like the, the major ingredient for everything, right? Um, my wife has told me often that if we can go someplace and the, the meal can be horrible, the steak can be tough, the chicken be stringy, but if you have good bread, you'll get through the meal just fine. And I think that's true. But the only problem is the barley bread that Jesus used to feed the 5,000 wasn't the best bread on the market. It was called barley, which meant it was for the poor. It was the bread the poor could, could, could afford. And that barley loaf was not the best bread. It, in fact, it was kind of tough. And yet, even though it was tough bread, it wasn't the best bread. Those disciples sought out Jesus because they had their tummy full. It kind of reminds me of a heart that just says, well, I'm satisfied with just what, whatever, whatever I get. Whatever I can get from others. Whatever I can take advantage of. And Jesus said that superficiality, that attempt to be on the exterior, something you're not without dealing with the interior motivations, this is why you're in danger because you have a heart of unbelief. You're not really dealing with Christ. You're only dealing with the superficialities of Christ. That can happen in a church. It can happen in your walk with Christ as you go through the Bible. You could read your Bible every day. You could pray every day. But if you're not really dealing with the places God is speaking to you about that are hindering you from knowing Christ and loving him, then you're just simply going through the motions. You're simply not dealing with Christ. You're just being religious. And by the way, we can be religious about anything. Some of you are very religious about baseball. Some of you are very religious about canoeing on the lake. Some of you are very religious about golf. I, I don't get that one. I've never understood why anybody would want to chase a white ball across any place, much less try to put it in a cup that's just too small. But we can, we can be very religious as an attempt to not deal with the very core issues of what it is that is robbing us of life. We still have enmity with other people. We still have unresolved issues. We still have places where we coddle sin and we hold on to it because we believe that somehow it will bring life to us. The second thing about unbelief here that's important is that these people were unprepared to relinquish the personal authority that Jesus requires. And because of that, they were incapable of taking the first steps of genuine faith. Now, what do I mean by that? In the Reformed faith, we understand that coming to faith in Christ involves three steps. First, there must be a hearing of the gospel. There is a, a knowledge that you get. You hear the gospel that we're separated from Christ because of our sins. There's no way we can save ourselves, change our condition, in any way satisfy the justice of God because we've sinned and fallen short of his glory. And God so loved us that he sent his son into the world to die on the cross and pay the penalty for those sins so that now we can be forgiven and be reunited with God without any shame. 
And the most amazing thing is that first step is known by so many people, but it makes no difference in their lives. Because it's knowledge. There has to be two more parts of that faith. There has to be an assent that that gospel is true, that I need Christ every day. And there must be that third part where I completely trust in Christ alone. Christ alone for my righteousness. That I trust him only to know that I'm forgiven by God. These people, when they heard Jesus say, I'm the bread of life and you must come to me. They said, well, that's nice. That's wonderful. But they never opened their hearts to the Lord. They never called upon his name. They never poured out their spirit before him. The third thing that the scriptures talk about here is that this heart of unbelief can be, can be offended by the claims of Jesus. Uh, if you look in verses 30, 32 and especially in 58 as we read this morning, one of the things that Jesus talks about is that you can't make it on your own. You can't be right with God through your own good works. And that alone offends because we really do believe we're good. And that we can do enough goodness to be right with God. And then fourthly and finally, the most amazing thing about the passage is that not only were people more interested in superficial things, not only were they unprepared to relinquish authority to Christ, not only were they offended by the claims of Christ, they didn't like hearing when Jesus said in the metaphor that he was the bread that can satisfy because they interpret it as cannibalism. What does he mean? What does he mean that we have to eat his body? What does he mean? You know what was really happening? They did not understand what this meal was about. I remember days growing up in the Presbyterian church. I could not wait for communion in our church. Do you know why? It wasn't because we were allowed to take communion. It's because when Reverend Wardlaw lifted the top tray, we used grape juice in that church, Welch's grape juice, and it filled the entire sanctuary with the aroma of the grape juice. Do you all know that? You remember that? And the first thing that went through my mind as a kid was, man, I want some of that. And so as that was being passed around, the only thing I could think about was, I can't wait to get home because I'm going to buy some Welch's grape juice. Or at least I'm going to get mom or dad to pick some up on the way. Well, all that was happening in that mind for that child, I was at that age, was that there was something about the table that was indeed inviting and palatable. But it was completely over me as far as what happens at the table. That I commune with God. That I am transparent before him. It comes from a heart of unbelief. Do you know the Bible says, guard your heart, guard it, lest any unbelief enter your heart. This is the warning Jesus is giving. Because many, he says, many, many will miss it. But then he goes on to talk about how many will find it. And you say, how will they find it? 
Well, he, he sums it up in this way. He says, the Father will draw you. The Father will draw you. Her name is Christine. Not a real name. She had grown up in a setting much like uh, many people in the United States. She had grown up in a church where she really went to church and went religiously most of her life. But after college, something happened. She started thinking, well, you know, church was okay, but I can just live without it. And so she started missing church. And her attendance waned in such a way that her life began to unfold in such a way that there was no worship of God whatsoever. And her life continued after she met a young man that she decided she wanted to live with. And as she lived with him and they went forward in their life, life seemed to be Seemed to be going pretty good. Until one day her boyfriend was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And when all that she had put her trust in crumbled under her feet, what was left for her to stand on? Nothing. And it caused her to spiral into a search for what really matters. And amazingly, she was drawn by the Father to a place where she could hear once again the gospel. And she now tells people, you know, this is really real. This Jesus can really change your life. But you must come to him. I hope you do. Because he's in this place this morning. He's been speaking to you of places where you have resisted him. And he says, I want to give you life. I want to pour into you into the brokenness you know, I want to pour in what genuinely is real living. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your table, we are so grateful for the gift of Christ. As we come to this table, it is a reminder that it is a table of joy because you supply for us what we cannot supply for ourselves. We pray that as we come, we would have hearts that are believing your words. That we come to you through it. That it is a sign and a seal given to us that we might commune with you this morning. Where we might be transformed. And we would no longer live by the externals of life. But that we would have a deep love and abiding devotion to knowing what you have taught and asking you to change us that we might live. For this we ask and we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. And the people of God said together,